Hello, welcome back. Thank you for joining me here again on Recorded Conversations. Today's episode includes my friend, Cordell Winrow. I've had him on the show before, and as a trusted confidant, a close friend, and somebody who offers an experience unlike my own, I trust in him to be real with me, to be honest with me, and to be open about whether or not I'm seeing things in a skewed way. This conversation today is tackling of current issues. We really get into the Botham gene and Amber Geiger ruling. We talk about Brant Jean's forgiveness. We talk about Facebook inundation, radical grace, jealousy and how it's reactionary, justice, race versus grace, And if we actually acted like Christians, we wouldn't participate in the complaint culture. I really appreciated this dialogue that Cordell and I had, and we were able to take this conversation to almost the four-hour mark. So what I will be offering to you is a three-part series of my conversation with Cordell. And so part one, we tackle as many topics as we can. Part two and part three will be coming in the preceding weeks where we wrap up the rabbit holes that we were able to dig down into. I really hope you enjoy today's episode and I look forward to your feedback. I'm going to start recording and I'll say welcome back, Cordell. Thanks for joining me again here on Recorded Conversations. That's what you're going to say when you start it, right? That's what I just said now. We started. Didn't you see the record button? I mean, I I saw the record button. I mean, this is why I'm not going to have you back on the show, because you're not paying attention. (laughs) I was totally paying attention, but you said that you were going to say that. I didn't realize that you were actually saying that. Yep, I said it. (laughs) You see, there there was a miscommunication. Good thing we're talking about miscommunications, right? Yes, we are. No, and you know, it's funny what... So every time I talk to you, Cordell, I take notes. I've told you that too. Right. And so the last time we talked on the phone was on September 14th. Mm-hmm. And I call it my Cordell, my chat with Cordell notes. <laughs> and <laughs> assumption, jealousy, and missing the mark. You like were very specific. These are the three particular things at the time you were irritated about a few things. And I, I sat here and I doodled assumption, jealousy, and missing the mark the whole time we were talking. And then I took little notes about some of the things you were saying, but you were like, this is what we're talking about. And I still want to talk about those things, but there was something else I wanted to bring to the surface because that when we were talking about assumption, jealousy, and missing the mark, I wrote down grace. And I don't remember why I wrote down grace, but I think because... We usually rabbit hole in our conversations, go down so many rabbit holes. I think at some point we we ended up discussing grace. And one of the reasons that I really liked that I had written that word down is because grace has been like the prevalent word in like, I would say the news streams and the social media and even to what I've been writing about. And we talked a little bit earlier um, and I told you some of the things I wanted to talk about. And one of the things I wanted to talk to and then segue somehow back to assumption, jealousy, and missing the mark was the Amber Geiger ruling um, regarding Botham James, Jean, excuse me, Botham Jean, 
and um, the the shooting that took place between the white female police officer when she basically invaded the apartment of an unarmed black man and killed him and then claimed that she was going to her apartment. And so I had asked you for your perspective coming from your background, your history. And I'm wondering if we could just kind of pick back up a little bit what we were talking about earlier. And what you said, you said there were three perspectives you could offer coming from the perspective of of Cordell. Yeah, so I'm going to warn the audience now. I will more than likely get triggered while I'm talking about this because it is something that I'm super passionate about, specifically on one of the perspectives. And um, just know that when you sense that switch, understand that coming from my perspective, it is just something that is super close to my heart, not something that I'm trying to beat somebody up to understand, but just, I get really passionate about it. Well, that's good because this podcast is about compassionately considering other perspectives. So I'm, I'm super excited to hear you talk about the perspectives that you can offer. Okay. So I guess the first and foremost perspective that I can offer is coming from a black man. Um, And just what I have grown up watching um some things hit closer to home than others but with this particular ruling and the way it has come down i can understand why so many in the black community are super frustrated with this ruling yeah and it's not so much that they are frustrated because there was justice served but because justice wasn't served effectively. So let me break that down. When we say justice is served, the punishment should fit the crime. And more often than not, we see that when it comes to black men and women and the punishments for the crimes that they commit versus white men and women and the punishments for the crimes that they commit, there is a vast and large disparity between the two. Yeah. So let's just talk about, you know, the black kid and the white kid that get pulled over for smoking marijuana in a place where marijuana is illegal. Mm-hmm. More often than not, the black kid will get a heavier punishment for smoking pot and the white kid will get for smoking pot. That is an unequal double standard. If the standard should be set that if you get caught smoking weed in a place where smoking weed is illegal and the punishment is supposed to be probation and so many hours of community service, if you give the black kid 50 hours of community service that he has to do, on Saturdays and Sundays or whatever days, you can't then go and give the white kid 20 hours of community service. Yeah. Because the punishment should be equal. They are two kids that committed the same crime. They should get the same kind of treatment when it comes to the laying down of the law or the justice that needs to be served. If it's 50 hours of community service, 
it's 50 hours of community service. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if they're black or white. It doesn't matter if they're Hispanic or Asian. It's 50 hours of community service. But what happens more often than not, with, for black kids, they will be made to look like animals. And so that 50 hours of community service turns into, say, 75 hours of community service because they, quote unquote, have a history of being disruptive. They haven't learned their lessons. You know, they're, they're continually doing these types of things. So rather than the 50 hours of community service, they're portrayed as something that they are not. And then they're given an even heftier sentence. Yeah. Whereas more often, you know, with white kids, you'll see them as honor roll students, never having problems within the family, always helpful in society. They have a bright future ahead of them. They can do anything that they want because they, they are great in school. So rather than getting the 50 hours of community service, they'll get 20. Yeah. Because they've learned their lesson. And they will probably never do that again. So it makes sense to give them a lighter sentence. But the punishment is supposed to be 50 hours of community service if you break this particular law, smoking weed, an area where you're not supposed to smoke weed. It's 50 hours of community service. How is it that a black kid gets 75 and a white kid gets 20? Now, do you think that stems from just a bad interpretation of the law when individual cases are presented to judges? Or do you think that stems from just blatant racist judges that differentiate uh, punishment based on skin tone or both or more? It's probably a combination of both. Mm -hmm. It's probably a combination of both in the fact that laws can be laws are not as black and white as people might think they are. Yeah. And you can interpret laws to say certain things. And so if you have two kids that commit the same crime and you have two different prosecuting attorneys that can interpret the law in different ways, you'll end up getting that disparity because they're going to prove, try to prove vastly different things. And it also goes so far as the presentation of the case as well. The presentation of the case and the presentation of the offenders makes a big deal with how sentencing also goes. If you and can, the presentation you, costs money. Presentation costs money. Presentation also takes into consideration the humanizing effect that a person can have when describing the offender. So if we describe the offender in a light that makes him look more human, more like he is a great person who just made a mistake, we're more often, you know, and having been in jury duty, more often to take that into consideration and, and try to lighten the load a little bit, even though we're not supposed to as jurors. I've seen mm -hmm. it happen from serving ju jury duty. On the other hand, if you have a prosecutor who is really good at making a person look like a complete animal, 
and dehumanize that person to make them look like they are vulgar and they just they will never never learn their lesson the inherent bias that comes into play means that we should be harder on that person and unfortunately that does cost money and again another unfortunate thing is you don't see a lot of african americans with that kind of money to be able to pay off those kinds of lawyers to make them look that kind of way as you would with white kids with affluence. But even if you did, I mean, I don't really believe our society has evolved enough to not look at a black a person on trial versus a white person on trial and think that one is more worthy of forgiveness than the other. I think there's still that messaging that says black is bad to a lot of people. I mean, I mean, I know that seems pessimistic, but I think there is, I've, I just recently witnessed it. I mean, I couldn't believe it was okay. So I'm obviously on social media and you are like anti-social media, but I was on local social media just this past week. And some uh, and it was for the Edina. It was for Edina, Minnesota, and it was shared by some Edina community page. They were on the lookout for a suspicious person who, I guess, threatened somebody and maybe shoplifted from a Target or something. He was a black man, very dark-skinned black man. The assumption was that he must have been Somalian, and they shared this on this community page for Edina and. Um, somebody that I personally know in real life had posted on there about how they were really dismayed by all the the really awful comments that were being shared. And I was like, I grew up in, in, in an area very close to Edina. I grew up in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. And to see people spewing the vitriol and the hatred and the assumptions and these horrible, bigoted, racist things right there on an open public forum, like, baffled the hell out of me but at the same time I was like we all I feel like I've been living on a, under a rock at times because it's exposed to me and I'm like I can't believe I'm seeing somebody say this I can't believe I'm seeing somebody have this opinion and then I have friends who are like are you kidding me this is new to you you feel like you've been living under a rock this has been my reality this has been my existence Danielle have you been walking around with your eyes closed and so that forces me to take a step back and go wow even then I was still so ignorant that I actually believed that people that just lived like in my old neighborhood had evolved past this this kind of I- ideology that says that dark skin must equal bad. I mean, I've I've had to get into arguments with my grandma as of recent years. And, you know, she'll see some negative news report and, and it's a black person who's the alleged suspect. And she's like, see, they just go and they keep making themselves look bad. And I'm like, who's they? And what what are you saying? And what? You can't say things like that, you know? And But it's it's a reality that I think white people don't want to admit to. I don't know. What say you? Um, I think that you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's unfortunate in a lot of ways that we have not grown past this, that people don't realize that this goes on more often than not, and it's a lot of unconscious processing. Mm-hmm. that stems from the music that they listen to, 
the media that they ingest on a day-to-day basis, the conversations that they hear in passing, the rhetoric that they're fed day in and day out in the home. A lot of this stuff is so unconsciously ingrained in their subconscious and their psyche that it is, I mean, I don't, I don't even know how those of us who have kind of woken up to the reality that our words have power and the things that we say have to come from a space within us. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how many of us, when we see this, can can just turn a blind eye to it. Yeah. But there are so many people that turn a blind eye out of ignorance. Yes. You have to understand that your words mean something and out of the heart, overflow of the heart, your mouth is going to speak. What you've ingested for a long period of time is eventually going to come out. Yeah. No, no, there's no way around it. You've had an internal dialogue about how black people are acting. Um, you've had an internal dialogue going on. Uh, you've heard people talking about this, commenting about this for so long that at some point, unless you do an inventory of yourself and begin to check yourself, the stuff is going to start spewing out whether you like it or not. So I do believe that a lot of what people are experiencing these days comes from what they themselves are allowing in. People don't take an inventory of what kind of music that they're listening to, what kind of movies they're watching, what they're ingesting on social media. And for the record, I am not anti-social media. I'm anti-Facebook. <clears throat> Sorry, my bad. Anti-Facebook. Um, it's okay. It's okay. I'm anti-Facebook for this reason because you you get so inundated with the negativity that comes forth like a lot of it is unsolicited. I'd say 90% of what we intake is unsolicited, but we can't get our eyes off the screen. Yeah. So it just gets fed to us day in and day out, whether we want it or not, because all Facebook does is show you what everybody is saying, when they're saying it, how they're saying it, all the conversations that are going back and forth and the, the polarizing comments that are going back and forth. Yeah, and it's specifically catered and curated specifically for you and your insulated, sheltered lives, too. So if you are of the ignorant persuasion, you're never going to get an injection of a different reality. You're just always going to keep seeing a confirmation bias in your newsfeed. Exactly. Yeah. And so that that in and of itself is actually why I got off of Facebook. Because with Instagram, more than anything, all you see is pictures. <laughs> Yeah. You just see pictures. And so with that. And memes. Lots of memes. Pictures and memes. Yes. But you can curate your own what you want to see on Instagram a lot easier than you can do on Facebook. Yeah. So. And Twitter is just where you go to be really mean. Yeah. I I don't use Twitter at all. I only use Instagram um, just because I love uh, being able to find people w- with like-mindedness, like things for, for instance, playing percussion, um, yeah. music. I love the music Instagram pages. So I'm, I'm all up in there and you know what, I'm going to totally throw this out there. I'm a geek and a nerd 
And I love watching the anime pages where I can see anime memes. I can get updates on when Comic-Cons are coming, you know? Yeah, yep, you are a nerd. Definitely a nerd. (laughs) And so being able to do that on Instagram, I couldn't do that on Facebook like I can do on Instagram. Yeah. So my intake of bad or negative things has dwindled to maybe like 10% because I'm not on Facebook anymore. I don't see it. Yeah. Facebook makes me mad. Facebook can go to hell. (laughs) Yeah. No, but here's the thing. And I will always say this. It's a love-hate relationship with all of the social media. Like, I love it because it's like, if it had not been for Facebook, Cordell, I would have never met you. And so there we go. I mean, there's uh, there's a million reasons why I love it, but then there's like a billion reasons why I hate it. And I don't know why I still torture myself day in and day out and use it and think that I'm going to figure out the ticks and the trades and and the tricks and, and the algorithmic bullshit and make sure that I'm still connecting properly and authentically. But it's a battle. It's a battle. Okay, I so. I guess you're right. Um in the sense that it, it is a love hate, but you know what? Yeah. I've also, for the people that I have met on Facebook that have been great um, influences on my life, I would say that that was a time in a season and it was for a specific purpose because now I, I couldn't ever see myself going back to Facebook. Okay, hater. Uh, n- not hating. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> not hating, but I mean, I would say that because of my relationships with people like you, I would be able to find many more quality people via actual interaction with you where you put somebody's name in my ear and I'd be able to hit them up on Instagram. Yeah. It's, it's, it feels so much different because the quality of people that I'm now interacting with, I don't get as much negativity because I'm so selective. Like, everybody on Facebook has access to you and you can't really weed out who's of quality or not because a lot of them are just Facebook stalking, trying to be nosy. Yes. You know, limiting myself in that I'm actually able now to gauge, you know, um, quality people. Yeah. Which is nice. Now back to perspectives of the black community. (laughs) Oh, that was a really good segue to put back out of the rabbit hole. Good job. <laughs> now back to our conversation about that. the the inequality of our justice system when it comes to, you know, the, the punishment should fit the crime. Let's just, I'll just put that out there. Um, there's too much wiggle room for there to be injections of, we'll call it racial bias. Mm -hmm. There's too much um, room for that to happen. And that room is what's causing the frustration within the black community. Because with this particular ruling that you mentioned at the very beginning, with that particular ruling, the punishment's not fitting the crime. If a black person walked into their house that they thought and shot somebody in the house, they would be like up for like 50 years to life. Yeah. Without possibility of parole. 
But here you've got a white woman who goes into somebody else's house, claiming that it was her house, shoots and kills him, and gets a slap on the wrist of 10 years. Yeah. And I think what was even more troubling is they put her on the stand. Yeah, that 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 blows my mind. Yeah, I saw a lot of commentary. I saw commentary from a law student, and I saw commentary from just a couple of other perspectives that were like, you would never put a black man on the stand to defend himself like this. You know, and could you imagine? And I mean, I get why they did it. I mean, women, I think, from what I've read and what I recall, usually will get lesser sentencing and and more so if a woman is more attractive and more so if she is a police officer. But I think that's why they put her on the stand. I think they knew if they put her on the stand, she would get a lesser punishment. And in in flipping that around, had the roles been reversed or say it even been a black man instead of a white woman, they would have never put him on the stand is what the consensus says. And so it's like they pulled every trick out of the hat they could to make this basically go away. Right. Well, and I was going to say, and then the real kicker was after this betrayal of justice, then a lot of the outrage and a lot of the upset um, came from Botham Jean's brother, Brant, you know, kind of like giving a little statement and offering her forgiveness and then hugging her and then that becoming another divisive um, talking point that has really got a lot of people both confused and completely upset. Well, that is part of the secondary perspective that I was, I'm able to offer. Let's hear it. Um, that secondary perspective has a lot to do with Christianity. Now, again, if we're going to talk about Christianity, got to give a disclaimer. If you are not a Christian, this really doesn't pertain to you. Okay, <laughs> So you really have no room to speak on this because it's not part of your belief system. It doesn't, mm. it does not have anything to do with you. This is specifically dealing with the belief system that Christians espouse to disclaimer over. Okay. Thank you for that. I feel like sometimes we, we have to let people know, like if you aren't part of a system like that, you really don't have a lot to say about the inner workings of how that system works. Yeah. Yeah. You're just kind of like a spectator on the sidelines, just making judgment Yeah, basically. So we have to be very careful, like when we're going into belief systems that we don't espouse to, or we don't hold to, or we don't even, it's not innately part of who we are. We don't get to say, to say, this is how it should be. I don't get to say, to say how the LGBTQ community should be. Yeah. It's not my, not my place. Okay. So with that said, Christianity and his response. Let, let's get into that. Okay. Um, so first off, it takes a big man with some big ass balls to do what he did. Yeah. Especially after losing his brother in the way that he lost his brother. That takes some big cojones. But we need to break this down from the Judeo-Christian perspective. Because people are losing their ever-loving minds right now 
for a reason that I honestly can't understand, especially if you say that you espouse to the Judeo-Christian background, if you say that you follow Christ, if you say that he is your number one all in all, it makes absolutely no sense to me for you to be up in arms, like being angry that he offered forgiveness. Number one, because the God that you say you serve is the one who modeled that type of forgiveness. He's merely imitating the one who did it first. Because with within the Judeo-Christian background, Jesus gave himself up as the ransom because he first loved us. He forgave us while we were still in our stupidity doing stupid things. The ones who yeah. crucified him were the ones that he forgave first. And it was unmerited mercy. Unmerited. No reason that he should give it, give that kind of mercy or grace. But he did. Which is exactly what Mr. Brandt did. Yeah. She didn't deserve, she's not deserving of that kind of grace or mercy. But the fact is, if you follow the Judeo-Christian background, that's the first thing that we're supposed to give. Is that grace, that mercy, that reconciliation, because we've been given the ministry of reconciliation as scripture states. We've been handed by Christ that opportunity to bridge the gap. So when people do some crazy, dumb things, it's our opportunity to extend the same kind of grace that God extended to us. Can you hear anything in the background? I can hear an upset little lady. Yeah, I was I was hoping that you would not be able to hear that. <laughs> Where did I leave off? I think I was... We were talking about... Oh, yeah, the Ministry of Reconciliation. Reconciliation. Do you remember? Yeah. So for people who are wanting to understand why Brant would go so far, it's because he's actually living out his belief to the degree that is necessary. And a lot of people are not liking that because it actually calls them on the carpet personally for not living to that standard because he's not living to a higher standard. He's living to the actual standard and people have dumbed down the standard of living this life of forgiveness and reconciliation because they want to hold on to their biases. They want to hold on to their uh, reasons to be able to be mad and frustrated and pass down judgment. But when it really comes down to it, the only one that is able to pass down that kind of judgment is Christ himself, according to the Judeo-Christian worldview. And if that's the case, that means that a lot of people have to put some stuff down that they don't want to put down, which means they have to take responsibility where they don't want to take responsibility. It's a lot easier to stand in the seat of judgment than it is to put down your bias and allow God to handle what he needs to handle. Because at the end of the day, according to scripture, the judge and jury is God himself. It's not you and me, which means now we have to live in a completely different way. We have to live in a way that extends grace. We have to live in a way that extends forgiveness. We have to live in a way that causes us to be an example 
of the love of God in a way that is tangible to the society around us. It makes absolutely no sense to forgive this lady for what she did. Yeah, but within, it's radical. Exactly. Within the Judeo-Christian worldview, Christians are called to be radical lovers of people and lovers of God. Radically forgiving, radically reconciling, radically giving grace to the people that do not deserve it, because that's exactly what Jesus did. Christians are called to be imitators and emulate the life of Christ, living up to the example set by him. So people are up in arms because they just got called out on the carpet for not living that example. Yeah. And a lot of and some of the attacks or maybe just the condemning of what Brant Jean did have like, they really kind of like just struck a chord with me that just, I couldn't shake. And so like, there was one specific thing that I saw that, that, that triggered a response out of me that was very reactionary and emotional and maybe even some would say defensive. But so I read this meme that someone had posted and it said this, yet the almost reflexive demand of forgiveness, especially for those dealing with death by racism, is about protecting whiteness and America as a whole. This is yet another burden for Black America. And this was stated by someone named Stacey Patterson. I don't know who that is per se. But the person that shared it, my my first reaction was uh, shaking my head. Now all of a sudden we have to put race in a battle with with grace. You know, and I just, I thought we can't, we can't hold the two intention. And it's if you accept grace, then that must mean that you're dismissing race or that race was at play or that this was about racism or that suddenly racism doesn't exist anymore. And it's like, OK, but that's we're not pitting the two against each other. And that seems to be where we always go, that whole duality of perspective that we have the black and white. It must be black and white. But it's like, no, sometimes it's gray. And taking one on and extending the grace doesn't mean that anybody is saying, well, now racism is over or, well, now justice has really been served. It's just like, no, this was bigger than that. This was bigger than all of the whole divisive social justice issues that our society faces. And I think that's what, I mean, that really upset me. I just thought we're missing the point on all of this. This was what he did was so much bigger than any of us could ever just freely give. And I don't know, maybe that's, and and I'm trying to make sure that I'm, I'm going to weave this into the jealousy aspect, but I kind of think people are jealous. Like they would never be able, they could never fathom for themselves being in his shoes and doing what he did. They have too much anger. They have too much pain. They have too much trauma. They have too much of an experience that has jaded them where they couldn't freely give that kind of grace. And I, I think that's what it is. I think we all just kind of look at ourselves and like hate ourselves a little bit because we're like, damn, I uh, nah, I couldn't have been able to do that. I think I think you're absolutely right. And like I said, I, I, in the way that I presented this, he called people out without calling any names. Yeah. Everybody more than likely feels called out, not because he called out names 
for Christians to step up, but because he modeled what it actually looks like for a Christian to step up. And that's the bigger issue is that in modeling that kind of radical behavior, unfortunately, it causes a stir. It causes a frustration. And you're right, it causes a jealousy to stir up within people. And it makes them realize where they're falling short. And who wants to realize where they're falling short? Yeah. Who wants a quick, swift kick to the butt to remind them that they got to step up to the plate? Because if they're saying that they believe something, they got to live it. You can't just talk about it. You actually got to be about it. I think also in our society too, and you know, this is just my my observation, but it feels like we believe that the justice system that we have set up within our society is that which mirrors the justice of God. And I think that that's a, that's a false assumption that we make, because what we expect then is after the gavel's been slammed down, that suddenly there's relief, there's healing, there's resolution, there's no more pain. I I don't know what people expect, but it's like we have to differentiate between the two and realize that, that, that mankind's justice is never going to look like the justice of the kingdom, the justice of God, the justice that Jesus taught about. I mean, I, I feel like we confuse the two. And then when we do that, we want to have an expectation that what we believe in our Christian beliefs is what we're seeing take place. And like, especially for white America, then we see something like this. We hear black America outraged. We're over here going, I don't understand. Like, this was like Christ-like. And why are black people mad? But you're like, oh, wait, Um, that's because I live in like all of this whiteness. And I'm not aware that they're constantly given this this meager half-ass spoon of justice, and my spoon's always heaping when the justice is served to me, when people look like me. And so then people forget about that as well. Mm-hmm. I, I would go so far to say is that we have to, like you said, hold in detention. We have to hold things in tension and we don't want to hold things in tension. We think that just because we forgive, that means everything is gone and done with. But what people don't realize is, no, he forgave because that is the mandate for what he is called to be as a Christian. But that doesn't negate the struggle that he's having to go through. People don't realize what he had to go through to get there. Yeah, And what he's going to have to go through to continually see that come about. Forgiveness does not mean that the consequences and that the pain just disappear. Forgiveness simply means that you take the receipt of needing to pay someone back and you give the receipt to somebody else. Mm. It's no longer your business, the outcome of having to pay them back. That payback has been given to Jesus, to Christ. Him forgiving her takes the responsibility of him having to pay her back out of his hands. And it frees him up to actually live life and to go through whatever he needs to go through. 
Yeah, with open hands and not clinging to the past and the hurt and the pain. Exactly. And so what people don't understand is that forgiveness does not mean the process is over. It yeah. just means that you can now go through the process without holding on to things that you don't need to hold on to, like bitterness. Yes. You are speaking like Marianne Williamson right now. Honestly, I just watched a video on her today and you didn't watch it. I wanted to send it to you actually, but you're literally saying the same thing she did. <laughs> we, when, when forgiveness is in play, we get to get rid of the bitterness. We get to get rid of the anger. We get to get rid of all the hurt so that we can actually feel and go through things and process this stuff with a clear conscience and an open heart. And it allows us yeah. to have a bigger perspective of things because when you are able to forgive somebody, now you can start taking into consideration what the heck are they going through? Yes. Because now you can start getting into that space of reconciliation because rather than wanting to see them pay the price that you want them to pay, you get to see, oh crap, they're actually already probably paying a bigger price than they knew that they were going to have to. Yeah. Like that, you're familiar with the Rwandan National Unity and Reconciliation Commission, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's like literally what you're speaking to, like what they did. We, as people, aren't meant to carry the burden of bitterness, pain, mm -mm. anger, frustration. We're not meant to carry those negative emotions. Unforgiveness traps those emotions within our being. Brandt brilliantly demonstrated what it looks like to not have to hold on to those things. But here's the thing, is that from the outside looking in, from Christians looking at Brandt, what they see is you gave up all the power, all the, the, the feelings of superiority, and you let it all go. You have yeah, a right to be angry. Yeah, and yeah, the, you have a right to be angry, but he let his anger go. And I think... I love that you said that because I wrote something earlier. It was like, it, it felt like an epiphany. I mean, if I'm being honest, I was watching something. I was actually taking notes for this podcast, writing down ideas. And one of the things that I read today, I think it was written by, I don't know. I wrote, I read two pieces today on the medium. One was by Andre Henry and another was by Jelani Green, Greenidge. And they were writing their perspectives about this case. And, um, you know, one of them said, like, if if white America isn't willing to be outraged over black violence, then it, it seems like it seems very contradictory that you would be that you would be praising this justice in the way that you have and thinking that justice was actually served. But more so what they were speaking to was that you're still going to see anger expressed, especially by Black America, because this feels like a kick in the gut. This feels like you told me I was going to get justice. We had all this buildup. You even put her on trial and, and we thought we were going to get something. And so there's anger. And that was one of the things that I was observing today. Like I wanted to be reactionary and be like, no, don't say that. Like, oh my gosh, like, and, and that meme that I read earlier, I was like, for real? But then I had to sit back and go, 
okay, I'm reacting. They're reacting. Why are they reacting? Well, this hits harder to home, closer to home for them than it does me. You know, I'm, I'm a white girl in rural Minnesota where there's, you know, maybe enough black people you can count on two hands in the area. And so this isn't my reality. But understanding why there's anger and why there are these impulsive insta reactions that are being doled out that for maybe white America feels like an attack. But it's like, no, it's not an attack. It's just it's their emotions. People have to be able to express their emotions. If we can allow people to express the anger and to express the disappointment and to express even the rage and and the letdown and the rejection and the, the betrayal that they're feeling, they can't go from those feelings to any t- towards any kind of healing. But the bigger thing, which Brant or which Brant did, which I think we just have to, we're going to evolve. Eventually, we'll all get there and we'll all understand that we all need to get there is that we want to feel entitled to our anger and our emotions, but being Christ-like means that we don't make our feelings and emotions the focus point. We make other people's. And if we were all looking at other people's emotions instead of our own, and then going, now I understand why they're reacting, and now I understand what they're going through, that's how we're literally picking up our cross and carrying our burden without complaint. It's not a burden. It's just realizing that we ourselves are not it. Other people are it. So putting picking up our cross for me means I'm pushing my damn ego out of the way. I'm pushing my feelings out of the way. And I'm making space for other people's. And I'm just taking them in. And I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. You're mad. And I don't need to be mad that you're mad. I need to understand why you're mad. And I think white America doesn't want to understand why people are mad. They just want people to stop being mad. Yep. But I I will also push back just a little bit. Okay. One of the important things that I see the body of Christ needing to understand is the analogy of the body being, being one where white Americans can learn to suffer with those who are suffering, mourn with those who are mourning, black Americans can actually learn to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And when I say rejoicing, I don't mean that we should have a party because someone got killed. No. What I do mean is that we need to take every victory for what it is. I remember a time where police officers were getting paid leave. She's got 10 years. That's a step in the right direction. It may not fix the issue, but can we rejoice over the fact that we're taking a step? There are, there are things that on both sides that there's much work to be done. Absolutely much work to be done. And both sides have to take responsibility for those areas that we have to grow. As a black man, I can't continue to sit here and be frustrated over all crazy, stupid things that I'm seeing. I've got to, I've like, and I'm just going to say this of myself. If I want to be the type of black man that changes my culture, you don't change your culture by complaining about it. Hmm. You don't change a system 
by complaining about how bad the system is. You don't change anything by complaining about it. You know how you change? You just do it. Yeah. You, you move forward. You make things happen. I'm a personal trainer. People are not going to see fat loss by complaining about how fat they are. They got to get their big butts, cellulite and all, inside the gym. They got to start working out. They got to start eating healthy. And the only one that can take responsibility for them to do that is they themselves. Yeah. Personal responsibility is huge. If you want to see a system change, you got to take personal responsibility for your part of the system. You got to connect with people who want to see the same kind of change and go about it in the best ways that you know how. Research new ways. Understand the laws. How do I work the laws, quote unquote, to make the laws work for me? I, I know that sounds horrible, but if people can interpret the laws to oppress you, people can interpret the laws to liberate you. Damn, that's good. We've thought about this all wrong for so long. The laws are oppressing me. People are oppressing me. Okay, well, know the law well enough so that you can start liberating. Again, as a personal trainer, I know I know a lot of the hacks. If you want to lose weight, we've seen the keto diet, we've seen the Atkins diet, we've seen people go vegan, people go paleo. There's no necessarily one size fits all. What we do know is that if you aren't doing something that fits you, you're not going to see change happen. So keto doesn't work for 100% of people. It does work for a few. Adkins didn't work for 100% of people. It worked for a few. Being vegan definitely doesn't work for me because I like a lot of non-vegan things. You know, being a vegetarian is definitely not going to work because I like my fish and I like my chicken. I'm sorry. I'm going to eat them. But knowing how to use portion control, knowing how to eat in a timely manner, knowing how to fill my plate so I have my, my macros, that works for me. And it helps my body change. So I've got to understand what works and how to leverage that. Some people are not going to be called to become lawyers to go try to you know, fix the laws. But what they can do is start at the baseline of their communities and start fathering kids who don't have fathers, fathering kids and mothering kids that don't have parents. Yeah, especially if they complain about parentless children. Exactly. So wouldn't that be kind of amazing if we did that? Everything we complained about, we just went out and like acted on ourselves to try and remedy. Exactly. And th those are things that you can tangibly do. Yeah. And then again, going back to the Judeo-Christian worldview, because this is what we've been talking about. But if you're complaining as a Christian about problems that you're seeing in society, weren't you called to be the change agent? Weren't you called to be the salt and the light? What oh, use yeah. is complaining about a problem when you're actually the solution to said problem? I don't understand this. We, we talk about foster care being an issue, but how many Christians are actually going to step up to the plate, be a mentor, be a foster parent, adopt, 
instead of just talking about how bad of an issue it is. We see so many people wanting there to be an end to pornography and prostitution and all that stuff, but how many people are going to help fight human trafficking locally where they're at? Or even just educate other people on human sexuality and safe sex practices and different tactics that move away from addictive porn use Mm -hmm. and what have you. Yeah, I know. We sit around and we complain. And I mean, I did it. I, I, I was watching myself. I was sitting here like writing to the, you know, letter to letter to the editor all the time, complaining about my community. But then I wasn't really doing anything. Right. And so then I was like, well, okay, maybe I either stop complaining and find a way to do something about it or decide whether or not it's a battle I want to fight. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, And to that point, as Christians, and again, this has nothing to do with people who don't espouse to the Christian belief. You got to understand what, what I'm speaking on right now only pertains to Christians only. Okay. But as Christians, have you forgotten how God deals with those who complain consistently? Do tell. I have forgotten, I think. I'm now I, I'm I'm not necessarily the first one who's gonna pick up Old Testament stories and history for you, but I seem to recall every time that there was some kind of grumbling and complaining, they were stuck around a mountain until they figured it out. God loves when people are grateful and thankful mm. and forward thinking in the fact that they can see what they have, even though what they want and what they need may not be here yet, they're thankful for what they have because for whatever reason, that attracts everything that they need. But Christians have forgotten that gratefulness is a virtue that God favors. And so they've been stuck in this mode of complaining about every little thing. And they wonder, well, it's complaint culture. Yeah, yeah, that's what we do. And you wonder why we're not seeing breakthroughs in our personal life, in our mm. life with our relationships with our friends and our families, or we see see uh, our finances going to crap. Yeah, maybe it's because we're com- so focused on complaining. And I believe in the law of attraction: what you focus on is what you empower in your life. That's true. So if you're so focused on complaining about something, you're going to attract the opposite of that thing that you really want. But if we start becoming grateful for the very things that we have and become forward thinking in, in our hope, we start seeing new things being birthed within our lives. And that has a lot to do with process. It's not saying, oh, I'm going to start thinking positively right now and I'm going to get everything that I want tomorrow. No, because the the real issue is that you yourself begin to change. Yeah. When you start thinking positively, when you start becoming grateful, when you start having an attitude of gratitude, you yourself begin to change. And because you change, you start changing the circumstances that you find yourself in. And as you change the circumstances that you find yourself in, you find open doors to things that you never knew existed for you. Yeah. But the issue is we got to get from point A to point B. And to get to point A to point B, we got to stop complaining. 
We always got, we got to stop finding reasons why everything is going wrong and being so mad about it. Yeah. I got to stop being mad at Brant for forgiving this woman who didn't deserve forgiveness. Maybe Brant's on to something. Maybe there are people in your lives right now that deserve or don't deserve forgiveness that you actually should give forgiveness to so that you can start your own healing process. The world would be a much better place if people were going through their healing process. But too many people don't want to go through healing because they don't want to give up that feeling of power, mm. that feeling of leverage. I hold something over your head. Therefore, I get to dictate how this thing is going to go. Well, and yeah, and then they also deserve their feelings and their anger. I mean, this is the deserving era. You deserve everything. I mean, and that's why we I think we're we end up in the place that we are and so disconnected is because we we're, we act so sa- damn deserving about everything that we don't try and ever work to make anything better. We don't try and reprocess things that might end up being problematic for us. We just deserve it. And I want it and I want it now. And if I'm not going to get it, I'm going to complain about it and I'm going to move on and I'm going to try again because damn it, I deserve it. But it's like, well, no, there's no writing anywhere in any kind of holy scripture that tells us we really deserve anything at all. Right. If anything, it's quite the opposite. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of eschatologies tell us that, you know, we're we're worms and we deserve absolutely nothing except God's wrath and judgment. But, you know, and that's such a combination on both sides of the political spectrum, too, is this this inherent right that we have to certain things. And I I always want to go, okay, I love the idea. And I believe that, you know, we need to look at every human being as as deserving of integrity and worthy of love. But I mean, rights, like you don't have a right to be angry all the time. I mean, you can if you want to be, but you're not endowed with a right to be that way. Right. And I really like how you mentioned attitude of gratitude. I It's literally a mantra I had with my kids. They hated it. They'd roll their eyes at me every time I'd say it. Gosh, just, as long as I can remember, I've always made sure that at night before I go to sleep, I thank God. I just say, you know, I'm grateful for everything. Literally, the, the all of the crappy things. The, the night my dogs ran away, that they first disappeared, you know, I was so upset and I was crying. And, and I was just like, but still, I'm grateful for everything. I'm grateful that I had two dogs to cry over. I had this experience. And all of the bad things that happened, even the nights I spent in jail, I was like, thank you for this. Like, I'm grateful for this. I know I'm going to grow from this. I know I'm going to see that this is a gift. And if you can take on that kind of mentality, when things start hitting the fan, it's not that hard to tackle. It's not that hard to deal with because you're like, okay, well, this is going to pass. This isn't going to last forever. It really sucks right now. I am pretty sure that when I look back in hindsight, I'm going to go, I'm glad that happened. It taught me something or it strengthened me or it, it provided a caution for me for the next time. But we don't want that we don't want to do something like that because that's not comfortable and it doesn't provide us with certainty. Absolutely. I actually saw a meme, uh, a buddy of mine sent me a meme and it was of the Hulk. And it, he, I guess you could say he was Professor Hulk. And uh, the meme simply said, God watching me go through trials. And then it has Hulk with glasses and it kind of looking like, 
he'll grow. Mm-hmm. And and that's the reality of it. Well, and yeah, and that happened in the, what the hell was the, the last freaking Avengers movie? Exactly. No, I can't even think of the damn name. Uh, I'm kind Endgame? of a freaking Marvel fan. Endgame. See, I'm not much of a Marvel fan, am I? It's mm-hmm. okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Um. Yeah, that that actually stuck out to me in the movie, though, that he will grow from this. And, and that was like a comment he made or someone made mm-hmm. in, I think, somewhere in the scenes. And I was like, you know, and I always look at Marvel movies and, and pull theology out of it. And I'm not the only one I know. I know there's like books dedicated to it. But I remember seeing that and thinking, yeah, like we don't realize that sometimes the monster that we can become can actually teach us something. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about like things like the attitude of gratitude and forgiveness, the the idea of being a minister of reconciliation and giving grace. Mm. Like I know we didn't get to hit this point, you know, quick enough, but this idea of giving grace, people don't really understand it because everybody wants grace given to them, but they mm-hmm. don't realize in order for you to understand grace it's when you have to begin to give it to other people who don't deserve it. Yeah. Like everybody wants grace when they screw up. Everybody wants grace and people not to beat them up when they make a dumb mm-hmm. decision. But the real test of a person is can you give grace when that person that gave you grace messed up? Can you give that person grace? Can you look at them and say, hey, you know what? I get it. You made a dumb decision. But that doesn't change the way I view you and that doesn't change the way that I'm going to treat you because you're an amazing person. But more often than not, people forget quickly that they've been given grace. And so what they do is, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. And you, uh, you just disappointed me and I can't, I just can't look at you the same way. Wait, wait a minute. Weren't you the same one who got mm. drunk and slept with your ex while you were dating with dating someone? Wasn't I the one who helped pick up the pieces of your broken heart when he wanted to break up with you and help you figure out a way to make things right with him? All the while, did you ever feel me judge you? Did you ever feel that I had anything other than love for you? Then why the heck, when I screw up, And maybe I got drunk and I said something that I wasn't supposed to. How come I can't catch a break from you? Mm. Where's the grace that you've received? Why can't you give that? Because that's also a big deal with this case. Mm -hmm. I would be so willing to make a bet that Brant probably has been the recipient of some major grace. And he's internalized it and knows that in order for him to move forward, that he also has to give it. Yeah. I think we don't know what grace looks like. I think a lot of people have never seen it. I mean, I wanted it all the time, too. And I was always been willing to give it. Like, I used to be called a doormat in some instances because I would be so forgiving. And and I just, I just always kind of, like, internalized that that was just what I was supposed to do. And then... It really hit me what it what it really looked like, like completely like enfleshed in front of my eyes. And that was when my husband forgave me after I cheated on him while he was deployed in Iraq, you know, within our first year of marriage. And he just like, I forgive you. And I'm like, what? You know, and I talk about this all the time, but that was really pivotal for me is, 
is seeing what true grace really looked like. And obviously, we still had healing to go through. Obviously, it wasn't like I forgive you and we never talked about it again. It was such a process. And what I think Brant Jean did is he just knew that if he, I'm just assuming based on what I would do is if you don't get that ball rolling, if you don't at least say the words and really feel them and mean them, you're never going to go through the rest of the process. And he needed the healing and he knew exactly what he needed in order to, to heal. And he knew he had to let go of that. And that's hard for us. We think if I let go of that, that means I accept it. Right. And acceptance is not what he did. Yeah. No, he recognized something and he made a decision based off what he recognized. And it's just as you said, if I don't get the ball rolling, it will never start rolling or it'll start rolling way too late and I'll have wasted time. Yeah. Who needs wasted time? None of us want wasted time, right? Time is money, as people would say. So exactly. if you're wasting time holding on to bitterness, holding on to frustration, holding on to anger, holding on to that wrong somebody did to you way back in the third grade, you're wasting time. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you're wasting your money. You're wasting resources. You're wasting mental energy, emotional space. You're wasting it because you don't want to deal with it. Truth of the matter, I don't know what it's like to lose my brother because somebody murdered him. I can tell you that I love my brother dearly. And if something ever happened to my brother in that way, I would be pissed because I have a great history with my brother. We may not be the closest now, but when I look on our memories growing up, he meant the world to me. And knowing that I wouldn't be able to have any more memories with him, that would be infuriating. Compounding the issue, he has four kids. What are you doing to my nieces and nephews? I would be even more infuriated because I love those children. What are you doing to his widowed wife? She's family. No. Like, I know I would have every reason to be furious, infuriated to the max. Mm-hmm. But here's one thing that I do know about myself. And you can ask my wife about this. You can ask my mom about this. You can ask those close to me about this. Even when infuriated, don't lose my rationality on the important things in life, especially when it comes to my belief systems. As hard as it might be, because I've had to do this in different ways, I know that once I got myself calmed down after the initial shock and anguish and anger and frustration, my decision would be to forgive whoever it was that did that. And I'm basing this off of past experiences with some pretty hard situations and scenarios, one of being betrayed, one of losing a close friend of mine at 13. He was killed. Um, Yeah. Like, From experience, I can tell you that everything within me, as angry as I will get, will bow down to the space in me that says, no, if I want to move forward, I'm going to forgive and I'm going to do whatever it takes to forgive because unforgiveness is a cancer, cancerous poison that rots you from the inside out. And I don't want to turn out to be one of those people that I've mentored along the way to help them release forgiveness 
so that they don't have to live with that bitterness and frustration for too long. There's a lot of psychology that I've read in recent years, too, that says that if we don't let, if we can't forgive, we're going to hold on to an immense amount of stress that that could threaten our health. And so it's like, it's beyond spiritual, it's physiological, and it can, it can impact our day to day. And I think, yeah, you have to know that you have to know that going in that offering that kind of forgiveness is not releasing them. It's releasing you. Absolutely. And I, for one, don't want to be held prisoner by some fleeting emotions based off of things that I can no longer change. Yeah. Like it makes no sense for me to hold on to bitterness and anger over a scenario that I can't change because I can't go back into the past and fix it. And so looking at this trial case, looking at what Brant has done, looking at the outrage, what I can tell you is that for Christians who are feeling outrage, you need to ask yourself, why do you feel outraged over the fact that he's forgiving? Because if he's looking and emulating Christ in his ability to forgive, even though he has a long road ahead of him, because I'm going to tell you, there are going to be days where he's going to break down and cry because he doesn't have his brother anymore. There are going to be days where he's going to be angry but the choice has already been made to forgive. It doesn't stop the process of grief. It just allows you to walk free when you're done with your grieving. Yeah. And that to me is more important than holding on to some kind of anger because somebody took something away from me, you know? So those are two perspectives that I have concerning this thing. I I didn't get to the third one, but the third one, I mean, pales into comparison of the second one. All that to say to Christians who are listening to this, it's not easy to forgive. Actually, forgiveness, I think, is one of the hardest things that you will ever have to do. I totally agree. Forgiveness is also one of the boldest moves that you can ever make. It shows a strength of character, and it also shows the strength of your resolve and the strength of your belief system. When you begin to forgive, knowing that the person that you're going to forgive doesn't deserve your forgiveness, it shows exactly what you believe in. Especially if you're saying that I name the name of Christ as the most important person in my life. Forgiveness is the most important statute as a Christian. It literally is the foundation of what it means to be a Christian is forgiveness. You don't become a Christian until you understand that you've been forgiven. God loves you so much that he forgave you. A special thank you to Forever Sound for their musical clip, Sexy, which you hear within the podcast. For more information on how to connect with me, seek me out on social media, Facebook at Danielle Kingstrom, Twitter at D Kingstrom, Instagram at D Kingstrom. For more of my work, please check me out on patreon.com slash Danielle Kingstrom. You'll be able to see more of the content I create, excerpts from my upcoming manuscript and fleshed, making a monogamous relationship real, and you can also support my work. As always, thank you for listening, and until next time, take care.